Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, for once, maybe the first time, I thought I'd begin a Christmas Eve homily by acknowledging that a few people in this room might be distracted by their excitement at what might be waiting for them under the tree tomorrow morning. It might be a bicycle or a mermaid skirt or maybe a shashibo shape-shifting fidget cube with 36 rare earth magnets. I don't know what that is either, but it's the best-selling toy on Amazon.com right now. Don't think I didn't do my research for this sermon. Of course, when Christmas gifts do show up in homilies, at Christmas it's usually within a scolding reminder that Christmas is not about the presence, it's about Jesus, which is technically true, I'm afraid. But recently I stumbled across something that assuaged some long-standing guilt about how badly I once wanted an object in this world, and I thought... I might pass the good news along to all you other shallow materialistic sinners out there. I think I was seven, the big biblical number for perfection, which, come to think of it, is 49 years ago, seven times seven. Clearly the days have been accomplished for this sermon illustration to be delivered. It wasn't actually Christmas time. It was summertime. And our family had taken a trip to Dogpatch, USA. Dogpatch was a little Abner-themed amusement park in Marble Falls, Arkansas. It was basically Disneyland to us Arkansans, but instead of Minnie Mouse and Captain Hook, the park was populated by politically incorrect caricatures of hill people. Shockingly, it closed in 1993. I don't actually remember any of the characters we saw or a single ride we rode. My only memory is of this miniature Corvette that sat near the ticket booth on a pedestal right at eye level for a seven-year-old boy. It was red, and it was perfect. Those fiberglass fenders swept up over the wheels like waves on the water, just, and its tiny headlights retracted into its hood, just like they did on the grown-up version. And best of all, or maybe worst of all, the car was going to be raffled off and would thus become the possession of the luckiest child in all of human history up until then. I filled out a ticket with great care, triple checking for spelling errors and general legibility, and slipped it into the little slot where I assumed millions upon millions of other hopeful kids had done the same. Now, as you can imagine, I had a hard time sleeping for a few nights. What with visions dancing in my head of me, driving around town in my car, friends gaping with wonder and awe, I tried to calm myself with the reminder that it would probably take a few days for the raffle to end, the winner to be drawn, and for the bearer of good news to reach that winner's house, presumably in some kind of delivery van with the car in the back, gassed up, ready to drive. The local press would surely be invited, should probably prepare a speech just in case. Now, the problem here was not just how badly the odds of winning were against me. It was also that I was a kid whose parents took him to church. A lot. 
which meant that while I wasn't especially precocious about much of anything else, I did have the guilty conscience of a 70-year-old Calvinist. I knew a Christian boy wasn't supposed to want something as much as I wanted that car, but I couldn't even want not to want it. I was doomed. Can anybody here possibly relate? Okay, here's the glimmer of hope for my eternal soul I stumbled upon just the other day. There's an English theologian I admire named Herbert McCabe. He was a scholar of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, no less. You got to bring in the heavies when you're dealing with these gravest of mortal sins, right? Well, McCabe says that for Plato, perfection existed only off in eternal ideals somewhere in the heavens. Particular things were, by definition, less than perfect reflections of those ideals. But Plato's student Aristotle saw things differently. The word perfect literally means thoroughly made. For Aristotle, and later for Aquinas, a thing was good, even perfect, insofar as it achieved the aims or intentions of its maker. Goodness could exist in the thing itself, right here in the material world. And not only that, and here's where we can really kick the self-justification into high gear, evidence of something's goodness actually shows up in our desire for the thing. The perfect miniature Corvette, then, is what someone looking for a miniature Corvette might find desirable, which means maybe my seven-year-old heart wasn't necessarily sinning so much as casting one boy's vote for perfection. I suppose there are other ways people might struggle with perfection around this time of year. Some of us are surely struggling not only with how to set the perfect table or find the perfect gift or dress your children up so as to appear reasonably perfect in church, but also with how to be perfectly joyful, or perfectly content, or deal perfectly with some failure or loss or grief amidst all the tinsel and the sometimes obnoxious and abrasive good cheer. Perfection's a burden if it means to be completely free of flaws and to be pure, But what if one truth made incarnate for us in the birth of Jesus is that to be perfect in the eyes of God is for you to be thoroughly made. St. Luke makes it clear that Jesus was born into the same broken world that you and I inhabit, just in another time and another place. It was a world of wars and imperial occupations, of unhoused families and cruel public policies, Augustus the emperor was making decrees, registering subjects. There's no mention here of the kingdom of God quite yet. Just that someone whose parents gave him the unfortunate name of Quirinius somehow rose to be governor of Syria in spite of it. Joseph's family line goes back to the great, if morally complicated, King David. But that won't ensure a room for the night, will it? Even if Mary, his betrothed, is great with child. The world Jesus is born into is not free of the flaws it's still burdened by. The same old flaws the prophets prophets still demand we set our lives to repairing. But when Mary wrapped up her newborn baby against the cold that night, she enacted another familiar feature of this world. 
which is the love of a mother for her child, simply for being the child he is. Someday, I'm sure, Mary will need that child to solve a problem for her, like, I don't know, turning a few vats of water into wine when a wedding party's running out of its juice. Someday, she'll probably need her child to be something grand or important, so she'll feel a little grander or more important herself in a world that tells her she's worth next to nothing. I mean, it would boost any parent's ego for their firstborn to become the savior of the world, I'd think. But that very first night, at least, we don't need Luke to tell us any more than he does. Because we know that Mary loved her child, not because of who he would become one day, but simply because of who he was, right then, a human infant, perfect simply because he was thoroughly and wondrously made. A mother's love is less a decision than a condition in such moments. Wouldn't you agree? And later in his life, Mary's son will show us that this kind of love need not be limited to the love of a mother for her child. He'll show us by challenging the old human tendency to confuse perfection with purity. He'll reach out to the outcast and the unclean, to sinners and foreigners and heretics. He'll touch them and heal them and listen to them and eat with them and do whatever embodied thing it takes to show them that they are worthy of love just as they are, just for being who they are by the perfect love that has made us all. The poet Christian Wyman once wrote, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. Sing God's being simply by being the thing it is. Have you ever loved someone or maybe even something simply and thoroughly for being who she was? Simply and thoroughly, even for being what it was. I know you have. You've loved someone or something with no need to possess, only to enjoy that for all that's torn and broken in this world of governors and emperors and no vacancy signs on inns, for all that's broken, a riven and beautiful thing can still sing God's being simply by being the thing it is. And so can you. For such love is what your maker made you for. Even at Christmas, unconditional divine love can seem like something that's meant for another realm, an ideal realm that it left behind when it paid us a visit once in Bethlehem way back when. It can seem impossible for the likes of us to comprehend it, much less live it out. But the grace of Christmas is at least in one part the reminder that you have known this love in your life as surely as Mary did not as a concept or as an ideal, but because some of it has passed into this world through you. Anytime you loved someone or something simply for being themselves. You and I and every child that's ever been filled with anticipation for what delight might await them in the morning have known a form of unconditional love. Jesus would expand radically what and whom in this world we might come to love in just that unabashed way, as we come to trust that God loved each of us 
in just that unabashed way first. So Merry Christmas, friends. I hope this one is a perfect one. And if you can't quite trust your own delight, let the delight of a child for something in this world be your guide. Remember what it means to love anything unconditionally. And then let unconditional love make your life more thoroughly into the one you already know deep within you. It was meant by God to be. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.